open up to Genesis 25, if you haven't already. Uh, if you are using the Pew Bible today, we're going to be on page 19. Uh, as always, if there's anything that you have a question about uh, in the middle of the message today, you can jump on slido.com and type in RevCDA in the prompt and uh, anonymously ask your question if you'd like to. We'll take a look at those at the end of the message. Let me pray one more time and we'll, we'll get going. Lord God, you are um, faithful, you are true, you're full of grace and compassion, mercy. You go out of your way to pursue us, build a relationship with us. Lord, we are undeserving of the love that you show for us. Um, but God, I just pray today that you would help us to receive it. Um, as we talk about uh, your sovereign will and uh, our free choice and just complicated things that honestly we don't completely understand, God, I pray that um, your spirit would speak to us and um, give us confidence that we belong to you if that is so. And if there are some in this room that don't belong to you, God, I pray that you would um, just prick their hearts and, and show them their need. God, I pray that you would uh, open your word to us. A text that is uh, really old and, and, and feels sometimes maybe like, what is this for? God, help us to see what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Does anybody have the experience of being in grade school and standing in a line with all your peers while someone who's been designated the team captain chooses who gets to be on their team? That's a stressful place to be, isn't it? Because what if, what if you don't get picked? Or what if you get picked last? What does that say about you? I was, uh, we, we, we went to ice skate and play broom ball on New Year's Eve, and I did not participate in either this year. I brought a book. Uh, and, but I, was, I positioned myself in front of the broom ball game, and uh, Spencer and Trevor were picking teams. They were the team captains. And I was watching, and there were all these, like, you know, high schoolers, just big guys and stuff. And Spencer's first pick is this little bitty kid. And I thought, man, Spencer just made his day, right? Because he was chosen first to be on Spencer's team. Trevor picked some big dude. I don't know. <laughs> Did you guys win? <laughs> Figures. <laughs> <laughs> But being first feels good, and, and sometimes it, it has advantages. We're going to talk a little bit about what it means to be firstborn today. Uh, in the ancient Near East, in Israel's culture and many other cultures around that part of the world, there's this tradition that the firstborn son inherits uh, double what of the estate based on, uh, from, from their father 
compared to the rest of their siblings. And then they become the new head of the family. Uh, So if there's like, if you have a family of five boys, and girls aren't included in this because other things, uh, (laughs) we'll talk about that later. Um, Girls aren't included, so it's just boys. So if there's five boys in a family, you would separate the estate into six parts and give the oldest son two of the parts. So the oldest son gets double. It's, and, and this happens, we see this all over in different cultures in that time. We see, however, that while this is clearly the expectation over and over and over again, God is constantly upending this practice. Tim Mackey says that the God portrayed in the Bible in almost every generation is overturning and inverting this cultural assumption that the firstborn should have the right to the father's authority. And here's just a sampling of instances where this takes place. In Cain and Abel's story, uh, Ham and Japheth, Noah's sons, Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau that we'll look at today, Leah and Rachel, two women, Uh, Joseph and his brothers, Judah and his brothers, Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons, Aaron and Moses, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons and then their brothers, Samuel and his brothers, Samuel and Eli's sons, when Samuel is kind of adopted by Eli, David and his brothers, David and Jonathan and their relationship, King Solomon and his brothers. Over and over and over and over again, there is a cultural expectation that this is the person that gets the power, this is the person that gets the authority, and God goes, no, I'm going to do it differently. In 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel is picking out the new king He thinks, obviously, Jesse's oldest son is clearly king material. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. And David is chosen to be the king. So today we're going to talk about a couple things. We're going to talk about what it means to be the firstborn in the Jacob and Esau story here. And we're also going to talk about God choosing. Uh, The theological word for that is election. And it's a big complicated idea that we'll get into in a few minutes. But first, we have to tie up some loose ends. And this is, if you've been with us in Genesis for a while, this is what happens every so often when the, the author of the book is done with part of the story. He has to kind of uh, put all the pieces together before he can move on. And this is what we see in the first six verses. Abraham takes another wife whose name is Keturah, and she bears him all of these sons, and they go all of these places, but he makes the statement that Abraham gives his whole estate to Isaac. The other sons get gifts, and they're kind of sent away because Isaac is the promised son. Some interesting things about this passage that um, I just found... um, interesting, is that Keturah is called a concubine. This chapter is not necessarily in chronological order, so it's, it's possible that Keturah was married to Abraham before Sarah died, that this relationship existed prior and it just hasn't been brought up yet. We don't really know. We'll see that Ishmael dies here in a minute, but he should have, if everything was in chronological order, his part of the story shouldn't go there. The author is just organizing things in a certain way to make them clear for us. 
But one thing we see in this passage is that God promised in Genesis 17, he says, as for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. And so this promise is beginning to be fulfilled through these eight sons, Isaac and Ishmael and these six sons of Keturah. We read at this point that Abraham dies. He's 175 years old and he's buried with Sarah. In reality, he lives for about 15 years to see Jacob and Esau be teenagers. But again, the, the narrator's putting things in a certain order for literary purposes. We're just tying up Abraham's story and setting him aside. Then we get another division of the book. We, we read the words, these are the family records of Abraham's son Ishmael in verse 12. And this is this word, again, if you've been with us for a while, the author uses this word toledot. And the word comes up over and over and over again, and it's how he breaks up the book into 10 different sections. And it's translated, this is the story, or these are the records, over and over and over again. And so we see these are the records of Ishmael, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's slave, bore to Abraham. And then we read Ishmael's sons, which Spencer did a fantastic job doing. And then, <laughs> thank you, Spencer, we see that Ishmael, who wasn't the promised son, who wasn't the one that God wanted for Abraham, he was this kind of uh, plan B that Abraham and Sarah concocted, he's still blessed by God. Yahweh keeps his promise to Hagar that 12 princes would come from him. We, we see them listed there. But then Ishmael dies. Again, Ishmael is not old enough to die at this point before Jacob and Esau are born. He actually lives much longer, but for the storyteller's purposes, we're just tying up loose ends. We're not going to deal with Abraham's other sons anymore. Now we get to another Toledot phrase, another these are the family records in verse 19. These are the family records of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took as his wife Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Paddan Aram and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord was receptive to his prayer, and his wife, Rebecca, conceived. But the children inside her struggled with each other, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Isaac and Rebecca, just like Abraham and Sarah, have trouble getting pregnant. And the story reads like maybe it's just a couple months. It's just a, a quick passing thought in the narrative. But we read that Rebecca is childless, and Isaac prays, and God answers. But this situation goes on for 20 years. We read that Isaac and Rebekah got married when Isaac was 40, and the twins are born when Isaac is 60. So this is a long process for them, just like it was for Abraham and Sarah. And this is good for us to remember, because we all, I think, if we are people of prayer, we have prayer requests, and we want God to answer our prayers, like, right now, don't we? Like, I prayed about it, and the next day, God better do something. Maybe you're, it's a health situation or a job situation or a relationship situation. Uh, right now, I mean, we, we, it's kind of the talk amongst the church is like we've been given notice that we don't get to meet here anymore after the end of May. And so we're on the lookout for a new meeting space. God, we want that now. <laughs> we need that now. I'm uncomfortable if I don't get it now. Do I have the depth of character to pray for something for 20 years before God chooses to answer? I don't know. After one or two years, maybe I'm going like, maybe God just doesn't want me to have that and I should stop praying. 
But see, Isaac knows that he is the son of the promise. He's grown up with this understanding that his birth was miraculous and that he's destined to carry on this chosen line that God is going to do something with. And so he prays and he prays and he prays for 20 years. And they finally get what they're asking for. And wouldn't you know it, it's really hard. Has that ever happened to you? Please, God, I really, really want this. And then you get it. I didn't want that. Rebecca says, why is this happening to me? The Hebrew is more literally translated, if it is like this, why am I here? Gordon Wenham says, this pregnancy is so painful that she wonders if there is any point going on living. I wonder how often we feel that way. Career, marriage, kids, retirement, whatever. It's not like I thought it was going to be. It's hard. But Rebecca is wise. She goes to talk to God about it. She doesn't complain. She seeks the Lord. And I think this is important to remember because when we are in pain, whether it's the pain of waiting for God to work or actual physical pain, God is concerned about our relationship with Him. He wants us to seek him, to rely on him, and because he knows that's the condition that will really be good for us, being close to him. And both for Isaac and Rebecca, there is no place to go but to Yahweh. They don't entertain any other options. And this is exactly what God wants. C.S. Lewis says, everyone has noticed how hard it is to turn our thoughts to God when everything is going well with us. We have all we want is a terrible saying when all does not include God. We find God in interruption. As St. Augustine says somewhere, God wants to give us something but cannot because our hands are full. There's nowhere for him to put it. And this is the grace of God expressed through pain. It's his way of drawing Isaac and Rebecca to himself in a way that they wouldn't be drawn without it. If you know Pastor Tim Keller out of New York, he uh, has recently uh, has been going through a battle with cancer for the last several years, and he was recently speaking about it, and he said, my wife and I would never want to go back to the kind of prayer life and spiritual life before the cancer. Never. The way you look at your time, the way you look at God, the way you look at your spouse, the way you look at everything just changes when you actually realize that time is limited and you are mortal. Keller, in the midst of immense pain and uncertainty and fear, says that experience is worth more because of the relationship my wife and I have cultivated with God than it would have been to not have that. I know many of us in this room are, are in, in pain, whether physical pain or relational pain or just uncertainty and fear. Don't waste your pain. Don't waste the opportunity that God is giving you to draw near to him. And the Lord answers. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. When her time came to give birth, there were indeed twins in her womb. And the first one came out looking red, covered with hair like a fur coat, and they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out grasping Esau's heel with his hand. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. So the issue with the pregnancy is that it's twins. I've never had twins. I don't know. 
Apparently, it was rough. The older boy is named Esau. Esau means reddish. The younger boy is named Jacob, which means he clutches the heel. The boys are named after the circumstances of their birth. I think this is a great idea. Honey, let me tell you the story about why your name is epidural. I think, that's, I think we should bring that back. It's good. God tells Rebecca that there are two nations battling inside of her. Contrary to the way power is supposed to work, he says the younger brother will be chosen to lead the family, to carry on the promise. And while God doesn't explicitly choose Jacob over Esau in this verse, he just kind of says how it's going to happen. This is how the story plays out. And we get some commentary on it from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, he says, Not only that, but Rebekah conceived children through one man, our father Isaac, for though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So we get this word election. Election means to choose. I mean, it makes sense. We have elections in our country and we choose uh, political leaders in our elections. We see in Paul's commentary on our Genesis text that Jacob is chosen before he's born and not for anything good that he'd done. Remember, is he, he's called the heel catcher. Anybody else? Can, can, you, can you think of somebody else who is a heel catcher from the book of Genesis? Let me read Genesis 3.15. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is words that God speaks to the snake, the deceiver, Satan himself. I think we're supposed to connect the dots there and go, Jacob, the heel catcher, that's not a good name. Jacob is not the good guy in this story. He is the chosen one. It's kind of like Anakin Skywalker. But he's not the good guy. As we're going to see, as his life plays out, he's going to do all kinds of really rotten things. He's not morally virtuous. God didn't pick him because he's so great. So, what's the purpose of election? How does election work? This is, we're going we're gonna to dip into a really controversial topic surrounding a couple terms. You've probably heard of them. They're called Calvinism and Arminianism. And these are two broad categories of, of theological systems that help us understand the mechanics of how God saves people, who he saves and how he does it. And this difference in understanding how salvation works has divided the church for centuries. And, and those, are two, those are two big categories, and there's lots of different shades of gray in between them. And then there's whole groups of the church, like the Eastern Orthodox, that were just like, we're not going to have that discussion. And so there's a lot of bandwidth here, but it's a really big rabbit hole. And we're not going to get very far into it today. But what I will say I have a firm conviction about is that I don't think it's something that should divide the church. Historically, this has been an issue, how God saves people, that creates division. And I think that's really unfortunate because if we are, no, no matter where you land on some of these ideas, if we are committed to loving Christ and seeing his name uh, glorified and seeing people brought to faith in him, 
then we should be able to live together, I think, as Christian brothers and sisters. I'm going to share some thoughts I have about this issue, but our church doesn't have an official position here. Um, And we would gladly entertain members who have a variety of positions in this area. So, a more strongly Calvinist idea of election holds that election as a formal doctrine, as we discovered in the scriptures, is necessarily about God's sovereign choice to save some people and not others from a time before they were born. Wayne Grudem says it like this, election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Another um, famous reform scholar, R.C. Sproul, says the reform view is called unconditional election, meaning that there is no foreseen action or condition we meet that induces God to decide to save us. Rather, election rests upon God's sovereign decision to save whomever he is pleased to save. So that's a pretty standard understanding of what election means from the Calvinist framework. And there's a lot of really brilliant Christians who hold to this view. I have books and books and books in my library uh, by Calvinist scholars, and I love them all. And there are a lot of really convincing reasons to land here. My main hang-up with the Jacob and Esau story as it's presented here, because it, it's, it's, it's expanded on in Paul's writing to talk about election, is that I, I'm not sure that God's election here has anything to do with the salvation of the boys. I think it has more to do with what God is doing in his big plan of salvation moving forward. What are some other ways to understand election? There are th- this word that we translate election or choice is used a lot in the Bible. There's a lot of material to go on. Sometimes God elects a single person for a job. Uh, In Acts 9, we read a story about this man named Saul of Tarsus, who is a non-Christian, and he is persecuting the church. And he meets Jesus on the road. He's going to Damascus to arrest Christians, and he's on his way there, and he meets Jesus and is blinded, falls off his horse, and he goes, he makes it to Damascus finally, and he's like sitting in this house, like um, contemplating his life choices. And this man named Ananias is commissioned by God to go to him and pray for him to give him his sight back. And Ananias is like, look, God, I'm not so sure that's a good idea. But the Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. This is the same word that we would use in elect, as election in other passages, that Paul is chosen by God for a purpose. There's many times in Scripture where God chooses someone, and they're always for the benefit of others. Paul is chosen so that the Gentiles would hear the gospel. King David is another example of someone who is chosen for the benefit of his nation. Sometimes um, a group is set apart for a purpose. In Psalm 105, verse 43, we read, He brought his people out with rejoicing, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. Now, this is one of many, many, many Old Testament examples of God calling the people of Israel his chosen one, his elect ones. But the question then is, is every single Israelite that comes out of Egypt, are they all saved? It doesn't seem like it because... Many of them are killed for being wicked and worshiping false gods. 
So they're a part of this elect body, but they're not saved. But then Jesus uses election a little bit differently. He talks about people who actually are saved. In this parable in Matthew 22, we read, once more Jesus spoke to them in parables. The king of heaven is like a king who, or the kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to summon those invited to the banquet, but they didn't want to come. Again, he sent out other servants and said, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened cattle have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went away, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged, and he sent out his troops, killed those murderers, and burned down their city. Then he told the servants, the banquet is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go then to where the roads exit the city and invite everyone you find to the banquet. So those servants went out on the roads and gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. The wedding banquet was filled with guests. When the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed for a wedding. So he said to him, friend, how do you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him up hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. In Jesus' parable, everyone is invited to the wedding. The initial, the initial guests, they refuse the invitation. This is a story about the people of Israel rejecting their King Jesus in the first century. They refused. And so God says, okay, let's open it up to everybody. Go, go out into the whole kingdom and find anyone you can. I don't care if they're good people or bad people. Invite all the people. So those that are chosen, they first of all have to accept the invitation, not like the first guest that refused it. They have to come to the wedding. And then we have this thing about this man who's not dressed appropriately. They have to be wearing the right clothes. See, they have to understand what they're being invited to. They have to understand the terms of the banquet. They must come to the feast on the king's terms. This man is not prepared for the wedding because he doesn't want to be. He has not come to this event honoring the one who has invited him. We, all of us, if we are Christians here, we are saved by faith in Christ. The, the truth of the gospel is that there is only one way to relationship with God, and it's through Jesus. And it is... It is um, fashionable to have a view of religion and faith that's, you know, kind of like God's up at the top of the mountain and everybody kind of climbs up their own route and gets to him. But that's just not what Jesus says about himself. He says that I'm the only way. And if you're going to come and be a part of my kingdom and receive my grace and forgiveness of sins and adoption of the family, you have to come through me. You have to come on my terms. The ones who are chosen in this parable are the ones out of everyone that's invited that actually believe the message of the gospel on the king's terms. So, there, so here's kind of the basic uh, conflict around the idea of election. Is election about God choosing people for salvation from before the foundation of the world apart from who they are, what they do, or is election to salvation 
a status that results from faith in Christ. And that's, if, I know that's a really simpli- simplistic way to say that. And there's a lot of reasons to consider both options. And it hasn't been solved in 500 years, so it's not going to get solved today. But I would argue, as, as we get back to our passage in Genesis, that God has a plan for the world. And that God is going to choose Jacob, not because he's better than Esau, because he's not, but because Jacob is going to be the instrument that moves his plan forward. Not to the detriment of Esau or not to the detriment of any other person, but for the benefit of all people. Remember, God promises to Abraham that all the nations of the earth will be blessed in you. And so by getting the plan to move forward and to come to fruition, Esau and his people have an opportunity to be blessed as well. In Romans, we we saw that this choice that God makes has nothing to do with the choices of either son. Both of these sons are pretty rotten. God is subverting what would be normally understood as the proper way of giving out power to make the younger son the one who would carry on the promise as an example of how power works differently in his kingdom. And this is an idea that's going to get picked up over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. We have an idea of what it looks like to wield power, who is the appropriate person to have power, what kind of person they should be like, what sort of decisions that they should make, and constantly over and over and over again, God is saying, no, it's it's the exact opposite of that. The kingdom that we live in is completely upside down. So God, God makes this choice. This is, this is how, how it's going to work. But then Jacob and Esau, they make some choices themselves. When the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter, an outdoorsman, but Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field exhausted. He said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. That's why he's also named Edom. Edom is another word for red Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, said Esau, I'm about to die, so what good is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate and drank and got up and went away. So Esau despised his birthright. The boys grow up. Another fast forward in time here. Esau becomes an expert hunter, an outdoorsman. For some reason, this reminds me of a, uh, a time when I was a teenager, and I, I was really interested in this girl, and uh, we were hanging out some, and uh, I went over to her house and met her dad. And her dad was um, just the, the most, um, most North Idaho guy I had ever met. And he was wearing camo, and he had a Cabela's hat on, and he invited me out to his garage where he proceeded to let me watch him grind meat into sausage. He didn't say anything to me. He just, he just had the grinder, and he was just putting these big pieces of deer meat into the, in the grinder. It was coming out all nasty the other end, and he just wanted me to watch that. Anyway. 
<laughs> Jacob and Esau have very different personalities in the story, right? They have very different interests. And I've heard this taught in, in a very like stark, like masculine versus feminine way. Like Esau is a man's man and Jacob's a mama's boy. And, and I just don't think that's very helpful. Because if we keep reading the story, Jacob's going to do stuff like sleep on the ground with a rock for a pillow and pull a giant stone off the top of a well and like live out in, in, in the wilderness and raise sheep. I mean, he's not, most of us couldn't handle that lifestyle. So Jacob and Esau are both cut from a similar cloth, but they work out their lives a little differently. Jacob is quiet we read, compared to Esau, and he's a shepherd and not a hunter. And we see that his parents, they play favorites, don't they? Rebecca likes Jacob better. Isaac likes Esau. We see this happen a few times in, in Genesis, and it never goes well. Parents, don't play favorites with your children. It never goes well. And however much like childhood trauma these boys have suffered because of that, however they came to be the men that they are, we see their character right away. Jacob is scheming. He's setting Esau up. John Walton in his commentary says, Jacob is cooking stew. Was this his normal activity? In a large household such as Isaac's, one would expect servants to do this sort of work. Most realistic is a setting in which Jacob is in charge of one of the groups of herders at a grazing site. When Esau stumbles into the camp, there may have been many servants and hired help around, but Jacob is the one who sees the opportunity and takes charge. Interesting insight. Why is Jacob doing this? Because he's got plans. Jacob is constantly grabbing for the firstborn position. And just because he's the chosen one, we're not meant to understand this as a good idea, as righteous behavior. God's choice of Jacob is going to come about by Jacob's own wickedness. God is going to use his broken character to further his plan. God's not responsible for that. It's Jacob's own character that makes him do it but it's still gonna work out for God's preferred ends. But one thing we do see is that Jacob recognizes the importance of the promise. He wants it for himself, and he's gonna do sinful things in order to get it. But then we see Esau. I just wonder, like, is Esau really starving? Have you ever been starving? I would guess that most of us in this room have never actually been starving in a medical sense right? Like we, we missed breakfast and we're starving. He's so hungry that Jacob has him trapped in this bad deal. There's no way for him to eat. He's going to die. I just think that's hard to believe. Augustine uses this text as an opportunity to promote fasting. He says, let frugality be joined to fasting. Just as overeating is to be censured, so stimulants of the appetite must be eliminated. It is not that certain kinds of food are to be detested, but that bodily pleasure is to be checked. Esau was, Esau was censured not for having desired a fat calf or plump birds, but for, for having coveted a dish of lentils. Esau has no self-control, and he needs his hunger to be relieved right now, no matter what the cost. He's a slave to his appetite. How many of you have children that are a slave to their appetite? 
I'm so hungry. You just ate lunch. I know, but I'm so hungry. Like, well, we'll eat again in like four hours. I can't wait that long. Okay. <laughs> we have to learn self-control. And Augustine says fasting is a way to do that. And for those of you that fasted with us over Advent, I, I know you, you learned some of that. It's a good discipline to cultivate. But Esau comes in from the field and he just can't wait. And he doesn't care about his birthright. He's destined to have a double portion of the estate and leadership of the family, and he does not care because he's so hungry. Which means he doesn't really care about the promises of God. I mentioned before that Abraham was alive until these boys are about 15 years old. They had likely heard the story of God's promise multiple times from their grandfather and from their father. And at the end of the day, spiritual things just aren't that important to him. He's hungry. He cares about the promise from God. We get some clarity in Hebrews 12. We read, and make sure that there isn't any immoral and irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. For you know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected even though he sought it with tears because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance. Hebrews tells us that Esau realized the path that his life went down and it was too late. We're going to read more about that in chapter 27. He makes a series of choices that made him into the person that he was and he regretted it. Andrew Murray in his commentary says, Esau lived in the present. For a momentary satisfaction, he parted with his blessing, the promise of God and his inheritance in the future. And even so, there are numbers of who are called Christians and are yet profane. There is nothing sacred or holy in their spirits or lives. They're absorbed in the present of the possessions and pleasures of the world. To speak of their pursuit of holiness would be a mockery. Murray wrote that in 1894. Can you imagine what he would think about the church today? Maybe we have... I I think the statistic is the average person attends a gathering of God's people like once a month now. So many of us struggle to pray, to be in the word, to be in community with one another because there's just so many other things to do, right? I've just got, I've got to get this business thing done and I've got to get this family thing done and this school thing and this hobby thing and the kids are doing that thing. I just don't have time for that. Esau doesn't have time to wait for some other satisfaction for his hunger, and, and he's willing to give up his spiritual legacy for it. And the reality of Esau's character as it develops, how he raises his family and the Edomite people that come from him, him end up being really wicked. The choices he makes affect his life. Over and over and over again in the scriptures, the Edomites are condemned for their wickedness. In Malachi 3, um, is that 3 or 1? Malachi 1? I don't know. I'll read it. It might be chapter 1. A pronouncement, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountain into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert 
jackals. This is a point where after the people of Israel have come back from their captivity in Babylon, they're reflecting on the fact that the Edomites sided with the Babylonians. They were their enemies in the end. They didn't support their cousins, the Israelites. They supported their enemies, and and God condemns Esau's lineage for this. This is the fruit of Esau's life. Those of us that are parents or grandparents, we have an opportunity to set the trajectory for literally thousands of people in the future based on how we lead our kids, how we lead our grandkids, how we share our faith with the next generation. Esau doesn't do it. So we begin to see in this story the subversion of power and human expectations. As Jacob becomes the son to carry on the promise, he gets the birthright. In chapter 27, we're going to see him get his father's blessing instead of Esau as well. And this is something that God said was going to happen, that God chose Jacob to carry on the promise instead of the firstborn. But there's something interesting about this idea of the firstborn. I said that over and over and over again throughout the ancient Near East, the firstborn son was just assumed to be the one who got the power, and God is subverting that over and over again. But then we get to the New Testament, and we read about this man, Jesus, who actually, he is the firstborn. He's the firstborn son of Mary. And we read that he is the only begotten son of of God. He is both the eternal God and the only begotten of the Father. And his place as firstborn gives him the right and authority to rule the world. But instead of wielding that authority the way we, again, in our broken way would expect him to, he gives up power and he sets aside his rights as firstborn. So even at the pinnacle of God's plan to save the world, remember, God is just setting up the pieces in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's life, and it all leads to Jesus. Even at the top point of that plan, God is upsetting what we would understand as a normal power structure. In Colossians 1.15, we read that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And in Hebrews 12, we read that we, you, have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn, whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. The assembly of the firstborn. You could say the church of the firstborn. This is is who we are as God's people. We are submitted to and give our allegiance to the firstborn son of God. He is the true firstborn and he's also the truly chosen one. In Isaiah 42, we read, this is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. And again, as we've thought a little bit about God's choosing, why is Jesus chosen to be a blessing for the good of other people so that you and I might be reconciled to God? God isn't, Jesus isn't chosen apart from others who are rejected. Jesus is chosen that we might be saved. Romans 8, Paul says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that 
he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. The fact that Jesus is the firstborn gives us the opportunity to be adopted into the family through faith. As we trust in Jesus, we get to be brothers and sisters in God's house. So while God is free and sovereign and uh, has every right to choose to work in the world how he wants, and he chooses some people for certain roles, and he chooses other people for other roles, and he doesn't choose some people over others to get his plan across. You and I are adopted into God's family, deeply loved, our sins are forgiven, and death is defeated because God chose Jesus. Because God elected that Jesus would be the one that would come and rescue us from sin and death. Let's see if we have any Q&R. Abraham and Ishmael died and were gathered to their people. Is this referring to their body among their living descendants or a gathering in the afterlife? I think, so this is something that that the scholars disagree on. I think it has to do with a understanding that part of their, who they were, their, you could say their souls, went to be um, somewhere in the afterlife. We get very little information of how that works in the Old Testament and just a little bit more in the New Testament. Um, but my understanding, especially as we bring the New Testament into it, is that when a, when a, a follower of Jesus dies, their body is rested in the earth and awaits the final resurrection from the dead. And their imma- the immaterial part of who they are goes consciously to be currently in the presence of Christ. Up until the, re- the, the resurrection of Christ, there's a place we read about it in Luke 16 called Abraham's bosom, which seems to be this kind of good place that Abraham's in charge of. So maybe it didn't start until he died. Uh, he got there first and planted the flag. But this is this place where um, the righteous dead live in expectation of their salvation, ultimate salvation by Christ. Um, So I think, to answer the question, I think the idea that Abraham and Ishmael are gathered to their people um, has some kind of spiritual significance to it. And I apologize, I'm not sure what that second question means. If you uh, wrote in and want to talk with me afterwards, I'd love to chat about it. Looks like maybe there's some, uh, maybe a typo or something. But yeah, good question. We are going to uh, take communion this morning. Interestingly, Jacob invites Esau to forsake the promise through the offer of a meal. Uh, Conversely, Jesus invites us to reaffirm the promise through the offer of a meal. As we come forward and eat of the bread and and drink the cup, 
we're reminded of Jesus' broken body and his shed blood and the promise that has been made to us in Christ, that we belong to him, that he is the ultimate chosen one, he is the ultimate firstborn, and our position in the family is dependent on what he's done for us. So I'll invite the band to come up and we'll worship together. Uh, Feel free to come up and take the bread and the cup. We have wine and juice per the dictates of your conscience. You can sit or stand as you worship. You can come up and kneel in the prayer rugs if you'd like to uh, change the position of your body some more as you worship. But I just pray that you would listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you this morning. Are there there things in your life that um, are painful that you need to run to Christ with? Are there things in your life that, are there spiritual realities that you're ignoring because you're hungry? Or you've got other physical appetites that you just can't, don't have the self-control to overcome. Do you just need to hear that God loves you? And he chose Jesus so that you would be saved. Listen to the Spirit of God as we, as we worship together. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.